Again, good morning. Happy Easter for anybody who uh, enjoys the Easter Bunny and all that good stuff. Um, we ourselves had a Easter egg hunt this morning at the house. Very early in the morning. It, it, this the 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 Easter story reminded me that in our own tradition we have a very uh, uh, similar story, actually, um, for those who know the story of Bodhidharma. Uh, Bodhidharma, of course, the first Chinese founder, or the, considered the Chinese first Chinese ancestor, an Indian teacher who came to uh, China from, from India. He, he, was, um, he, he died because he was poisoned. And when he died, he was uh, entombed. And um, a few years later, three years later, we're told that uh, somebody was making a pilgrimage to, to back to India and, uh, or coming from India, excuse me, back to China and saw Bodhidharma on the road. And Bodhidharma had one shoe, was carrying one shoe. And when this guy got back to China, they, they, um, he, he reported seeing Bodhidharma, of course. They said, well, he's been dead for three years, so of course that's impossible. But he was adamant that it was him. And so they rolled back the, uh, the uh, barrier to the tomb, and of course Bodhidharma was gone. The only thing left was one shoe. So, very similar you know, Jesus uh, rolling back the, the boulder, seeing that he was gone. What's the meaning of that? Well, I'm not really sure. <laughs> not really sure what the meaning is. Uh, but maybe it's just about, um, it's not about some dead guy, right? It's not about, it's not about some other place, but it's right here. The, I guess the question would be, who, whose shoe is that that was left in the tomb? Whose shoe? There's a Zen question for you. So here we are. Happy Easter. This, this time is when spring is in full swing, leaves shooting out. Uh, peepers at nighttime, the bugs stirring everywhere, all the carpenter bees starting to find their ways into the woodwork here. And, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, this is the true spirit of Easter, this rebirth, resurrection. You, you know, I guess one way of saying is you can't keep life down coming back to life. And, and for us, this means coming back to this life, this body. We're not so interested in what happens after death. It's not that it's unimportant, but as the Buddha said, he said, all these existential questions point us back to who is it right now? Who is it that asks these questions? Coming back to this life. And 
you know, many of us are feeling this uh, spring in terms of the pandemic. It was a year ago that everything began to shut down and uh, feeling that feeling, remember, just a year ago, feeling that doom, that kind of uncertainty, and, uh, and now it's beginning to shift again. And of course, many are feeling some kind of trepidation again, uh, some unsuredness about reopening. But this happens with any change, doesn't it? It's not just about when the change uh, is unpleasant. It's difficult with any change. Just when we get used to something, it changes. Just when we get used to it being winter, there's spring. And so the way to work with these transitions, the way to work with our fears about them, is in Zen terms, is to dive in. Like diving into a pool. And as Zen practitioners, we work, we learn to work with transition. The transitions that inevitably happen. To really... I like to use the term to, or the phrase, to live in the transitions. And in doing so, to realize that there is only transition. That's all. There is only transition. Everything is in transition. Everything is transition. Whether we like it or not. And so we either learn to write it, or we don't. To be it. Dogen said, the great way of the Buddhas and ancestors invariably involves unsurpassed, ceaseless practice. The practice rolls on in a cyclic manner without interruption. You know, spring doesn't wait for us. It doesn't wait until we're ready. Here it is. This whole notion of waiting we have to see through this as Zen people. To see through waiting. Waiting has no place in Zen. If we are waiting, we are missing it. Each moment is whole, complete. There is no waiting for a more complete moment. This is a big mistake that keeps us from experiencing happiness, is waiting for the happiness to come. How could there be a more complete moment than this? Of course, our tendency is to drift from the past to the future waiting for this moment to pass, waiting for that moment to come. And meanwhile, we miss it. The mind that drifts and wanders is so seductive. It's so tempting as long as we're caught in this way, though, we're really not living. We're half dead. And of course, we all do this. We create, we all create problems and then go about busying ourselves with solving those problems. 
after day. But this is how we turn away from this truth. Now, last week, uh, we heard from Guago about silent illumination practice, sometimes called in our tradition, shikantaza, just sitting. But as he reminded us, it's not just about sitting, but his holistic way of practicing. Really, shikantaza just means being completely open now. How many times have we heard this phrase, this mind is Buddha? And yet, we have a hard time buying that, believing it. Of course, we're not trying to just believe something, I suppose. We're, it's about experiencing it. But what keeps us from experiencing it is looking elsewhere. What else will make me feel happy and more content? What else will it take? You know, the Buddha had many names, many traditional names for Shakyamuni Buddha. And one of them is Tathagata. Talked about this a bit before, Tathagata, Sanskrit word. He actually referred to himself as the Tathagata, which means the thus come one, or one who thus comes. It's such an interesting translation. I think basically what you could say is that it's, it, it's somebody who fully embraces that shows up fully, shows up fully. There's this um, sort of um, interesting characteristic of the Buddha. It's said that when you would approach him, approach Shakyamuni from any direction, he would be facing you straight on. If you approach him from the side, he's looking at you. Approach him from the back, he's looking at you. Fully showing up. Springing forth from nothing. Uh, this Zen master from the Chinese uh, Song Dynasty, Kao Feng, said, This thing, this thing is like an enormous fire fierce flames pervading the sky with ever with never the slightest interruption everything in the world is thrown into it and immediately evaporating away like a fleck of snow no interruption not the slightest interruption no gap no border we talk about spring, we talk about summer, we talk about fall and these seasons, but these of course are just artificial distinctions that we make. You know, show me the border between winter and spring. Can you show it? There's just this constant unfolding. Show me the border between US and Mexico.
just one people. The only barriers, the only borders are in our mind. Which of course is born of thought, of division, of trying to understand. And then when, of course, we get laden down with thought and we can't perceive that way, we can't perceive the undivided wellspring that is our birthright. Constantly providing, constantly coming forth, constantly giving, alive with possibility, this crackling, empty field of possibility. And we hear this word emptiness in Zen all the time and get down on it. But that's because we don't understand. We haven't experienced it. The word in Sanskrit, another word, shunyata, shu. This comes from this word, root, root, shu, which means, um, which refers to this balloon, this uh, sw uh, swollenness of possibility, like the swollen belly of a pregnant woman. Not yet given birth and yet totally alive. Empty yet full. And so I think during spring like this, we can get, we get the most, we get closest taste of this pure potential as it erupts. Because it's, of course, this amazing show that's happening. If you just go outside, it's just this amazing show that's free. There's no $14.99 charge per month for HBO Go. You just go outside. Free. So, but to see it, that's the thing. To see it, we have to be in tune with it. We have to attune to it. Open. William Barrett once said that what is before our nose is what we see last. What is before our nose is what we see last. And Master Mumon, great Master Mumon said, the great way right before our eyes, but it is still hard to see what is right before our eyes. Another Chinese master said, named Wu Chun said, the path is in daily activities, but if you cling to daily activities, then you are mistaking a thief for your own child. If you seek some special life outside of daily activities, this is like brushing aside waves to look for water. Just like when we chanted a few minutes ago, like Master Hawkwind said, it's like we are like children of rich birth that wander poor on this earth. 
we are like one in water crying that we crying out that we are thirsty we're totally surrounded by water and yet we say i'm thirsty help Again, among other things, this passage is a reminder not to look outside of ourself. So many religious, religious paths, traditions are about, fundamentally about looking outside of oneself to some other time, to some other power, looking to a divine source out there somewhere. Even in Buddhism, you have strands. Um, I think I'm thinking of the Pure Land, the Jodo Shinshu, Jodo Shu, that puts a real emphasis on other power. This common uh, distinction that we actually find in Japanese Buddhism between self power and other power. Sometimes in Japanese, it's called Jiriki and Tariki. Jiriki is self-power. Tariki, other power. And so in Pure Land Buddhism, there is the Western Paradise and the future Buddha, which in many ways is a lot like Christianity and its notion of heaven, that salvation is somewhere else bestowed on us by some other power. And in Zen, we tend to emphasize jiriki, which is self-power. And, and really what this means is that we alone are responsible for our own salvation right now, right here. But, but we have to be careful. This is where we make a mistake because we, this self-power, this jiriki, this idea that we alone are responsible for our own Salvation can become a trap. Freedom is not found in the small ego identity. And in fact, in Zen, we go beyond both self and other. It's not about this individual ego identity, and it's not about something, some god, some deity outside of us. So what is it? That's what our question is. What is it? Dogen said to study the Buddha way is to study the self. But to study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by the myriad things. Seeing through all concepts. Dropping all ideas. And then, of course, all things are new and fresh, alive. This, right now, this activity of listening, this activity of seeing, tasting, touching, this is alive. But if we cling to it, if we cling to our activities, to our experiences, our memories, 
our thoughts, our feelings even. We cling to those, we fall into suffering. Even a spring blossom has to let go uh, to give way to what's next. This non-clinging, non-abiding. The Diamond Sutra says, arouse that mind without it abiding anywhere. Without sticking or grasping. And I think the most common way we grasp is trying to understand. Trying to understand something, trying to understand somebody. I don't get them. I don't get why this is happening. I don't understand. And in terms of practice, this space of non-understanding is very pregnant with possibility. If we can relax the mind, which means the body-mind, notice the tension when we don't understand something. Notice it, how the mind, uh, inability to grasp something, sends, shoots out tension through the body. So if we can relax instead, settle into not understanding, there's this great potential right there. But because it's uncomfortable, that's when we reject it. When we're uncomfortable, we tend to reject. This is the place of practice to notice when the tightness happens, when we're uncomfortable, and how that we tighten further with the mind, with the body to notice that tightening, and then see if we can relax into it. And this is one aspect of Taisho practice. We haven't talked that much as a group about Taisho, but it's not this discursive thing that we're learning in the traditional sense of uh, absorbing information, rounding out our understanding of Buddhism, of practice, Keisho is a practice of listening without grasping. That's what this uh, we're doing now. Keisho means presenting the shout. It's not a lecture. And so the practice is letting the words just you know wash over us and whatever. Sticks is fine, and whatever doesn't is also fine. And noticing that wish to understand things, that it's present. And developing the trust that we don't have to understand in the way we think. For something to have value, we don't have to understand it. Very important. We don't have to understand something for it to have value. coming to appreciate and able to inhabit the unknown. This is what in Buddhism is called the bardo. I don't know how many people have heard that term before, the bardo. <clears throat> it's often used in Tibetan Buddhism. 
<clears throat> more than you'd find it in other traditions, but it is the space between death and rebirth, that unknown space where in traditional Buddhist terms, one loses one's corporal body form. And as the energy that is built through these decades of life, of, of energetic tendency, as that is energy dissipates, it has to find a new form. Of course, everything finds a new form. So it's this unknown space. And when somebody uh, passes away, in, if you go to a Buddhist funeral, there's chanting. And it's traditionally seen as a, a way to present the teachings to whatever that energy is as it makes its way towards its next uh, incarnation. Uh, that there is a can be a confusing aspect to losing one's corporal uh, form. This often happens actually in Sashin practice. When we're deep in retreat, you know, it used to happen to me all the time where I would become absorbed in the practice to the point where uh, I would lose my sense of mm, where I was in physical space. It can be kind of a makyo, what we call makyo, or illusory phenomenon. But when we're not so attached to this body-mind, we can uh, begin to feel some freedom from that. But it can, if it we're not used to that, it can feel very confusing, very disorienting, I would say, very disorienting. And so traditionally, the bardo, to help this entity or through the bardo, this unknown space, we chant to guide that energetic presence through to the next body. And I was thinking about that in terms of how we should not, or we should practice and get used to inhabiting these liminal spaces um, by the way, what I just said about the funeral services and chanting and guiding, this is very, here's, that's a liminal space, right? Just understanding that, just trying to, what the hell, for our Western minds, like our Western scientific-oriented minds to embrace such a teaching can be difficult to swallow. There's a liminal area, one of those that it's the, but the thing is, because the thing is, we don't know. The truth is, we don't know. Unless you know something I don't. Maybe you've been there. I don't know. This word liminal comes from the Latin word for threshold. That space between things. You know. What, what we want is to be either here or there. We don't like that intolerable middle space where we're neither here nor there. No man's land. And it kind of feels like we're in that space a little bit right now with reopening. 
We're not quite open. We're not quite shut down. And it can be very uncomfortable. I know it is for me at times. I want you all here in the Zendo. But that is where we are. So to embody that space of what is rather than what we want is the point of practice in some ways to surf those urges to um, to practice non-grasping. The thing is, we tend to act when we're most uncomfortable to get rid of that uncomfortability. We, we all do that. And when we act from this uncomfortable place of being in these liminal spaces, we usually act in unskillful manner. When we're anxious, when we're stressed, when we're unsure, we want to settle that and and so we do so, but make mistakes. We're desperate. And out of that desperation comes really bad decisions. So this is why forbearance <clears throat> is such an important practice. And when we don't have forbearance, this is the place of practice. When we lack patience, this is where our edge is. This is where we work on the edge of practice. You know, I think I want to reemphasize the, the, the importance of working with this in small ways daily by, for example, not checking texts impulsively not answering calls or emails impulsively, pausing before we do, pausing before we dig into our food. You know, we pause as we, some of us uh, chant before our meals. Some, sometimes it's simply putting our hands in gasho. As the smells and the sights are coming in, we, we pause bow, acknowledge the gratitude for the food before we impulsively dig in. Pause before moving from one job, one task to the next. Pausing before we say the next thing. So this is one way, these small things are one way to inhabit that liminal space, that threshold, the space between two things. Because again, there is no waiting. We are not waiting in those spaces. We are, this is our Dharma activity. And to be honest, if we, if we don't, then what I found is our our lives pass quickly. It becomes one damn thing after another. That's really what many people experience their life to be. One task, next task, next task, next task. Oh, weekend. Whew. We all get tripped up that way, of course, and fail over and over again to work those edges. 
But the magical thing is that there's always another opportunity to do that. Every moment during our day is an opportunity to practice, to embody it deeper, to see, as Hakuin again says, to see that this very, this, the earth where, what do you say, the earth where we stand is the pure lotus land. I want to uh, end by sharing just a small story about Ling Guang. He had been practicing for 30 years in China. And once during the spring, he was walking in the mountains and he sat down to rest at the foot of a mountain and he saw this small village in the distance and he saw the peach blossoms, which were in full bloom and had this great opening at that point. And he composed a verse, which he offered to his teacher, Guishan. He said this, for 30 years, I have been looking for the sword. How many times have the leaves fallen and the branches grown anew? Since once seeing the peach blossoms, up to the present, I never have any more doubts.